0: I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the B.S.G. Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Tony Adriscoll. He is professor at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and also the Pratt School of Engineering. Prior to academia, Tony spent 18 years with IBM. So is very familiar with technology and with change. He's written two books on learning and organizational performance and numerous articles for publications like Harvard Business Review. He's here today to discuss his new book, Everyday Superhero, How You Can Inspire Everyone and Create Real Change at Work, which is published in the US in August of 2022. So congratulations on the new book, Tony, and welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Martin. Great to be here.
0: So we must start, of course, with the format for your book, Tony. It's not a, a typical 500-page prose book. It's it's a graphic novel using sort of anime characters. Why the format?
1: I think I have to credit the editor for that, Martino Sullivan. She said, you know, you're talking about people. You know, organizations can't change unless people change, and so maybe we need to bring in more graphics, make it more of a of a story. And I had a a good friend of mine, who does a lot of my graphics and has for many years, and as soon as Martina saw how he could bring to life a concept, she said, "That's it. We need to do a graphic novel."
0: Yeah, it's great. It's it's very engaging. I guess you know it's a challenge to write a business book which is worthy on content and and gripping, especially to uh, you know a busy executive. What's wrong with the regular format, or what would have been wrong with the regular format for this book?
1: Well, I think. I was trying to situate it in a hero's journey because it, people tend to naturally follow that. And I was trying to show an end to end change process where the, the different components of the research I'd done became manifest in the narrative. So it's almost like if content is king, context is the kingdom. So you picked up on it, Martin. The tricky part was fitting the research into the structure of the narrative. But I feel to get the gestalt of the whole change journey, the main character maybe needed to go on that journey and people needed to follow her.
0: Just before we go into the content, mm. you obviously did think a lot about the, the vehicle, the medium. Are there other business books that you admire for being you know, more engaging than average, let's say, or innovative in their medium?
1: Yeah. So, so actually, the inspiration came originally from Dan Pink. He did a manga book called Johnny Bunko. And so that's where, you know. once, once Martina said that, that's the idea I got. And then I'd say uh, Frederick Laloux recently kind of took his reframing organizations book and made it a bit more of a kind of cartoon narrative not not all the way but i also find those to be quite easy for me to navigate so maybe it's just the way i'm made up martin
0: and what's the main message of your book and, and what's the the topical relevance of that why do we need it now
1: yeah you know if you would say your strategy needs a strategy i would say we need to change the way we change if, if you think about strategy as you and i talk about very frequently. It's much more dynamic. It's changing a lot. The context we're operating in is, is increasingly unpredictable, harsh, you know, and, and, and malleable, funny enough, because you have more degrees of freedom. So if we're going to be perpetually kind of re-vectoring on strategy, the traditional change models don't work. So, so that was the idea was you can't play tennis with a golf club kind of thing. And I think the old models of change aren't suited to the reality that we're operating in today.
0: So you have this wonderful story of a challenge, the fluctuating, undulating disturbance, or the FUD, and the need to create a very large number of so-called field inversion gyroscopes, these widgets that neutralize this disturbance, and a change champion called Maybe. The names of the characters are wonderful, Maybe. And then the ups and downs of of the change journey. So maybe could you briefly summarize the the plot for us?
1: Yeah. And head nod to Joseph Campbell. I I had known of Joseph Campbell and the Hero's Journey, but I hadn't really deeply got into it. So now every movie I watch, Martin, is is no longer fun because I'm like, oh, we're just waiting for the ordeal. You know, you can see that it's quite formulaic. But essentially you have a main character maybe. She's in a down and out job, she hasn't been promoted. A big crack of lightning comes and FUD envelops the world. You can tell we wrote this during COVID, Martin. And so all of a sudden the fig that she works on, the Field Inversion gyroscope, becomes increasingly important. So she is then promoted to the upper levels of management to to work with the monks who give her the Merb, the Muck rule Rulebook, and says, you follow this without exception or, you know, you'll be in trouble. And so she she endeavors to do that with the hope to kind of create enough figs to save the world. And, it, you know, the futility of it just starts to unravel, as you can see, as you go around the hero's journey. And then she has the the Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker moment where she stands up to the chief muck and says, no, we're going to try it a different way or I'm, I'm taking my marbles and going home. He reluctantly allows her to. And then she goes on her journey, which is applying the second part of the more nonlinear framework for change and adopts a completely different leadership style. And of course, she saves the day. And um, the irony at the very end is then the monks want to, <laughs> they say, okay, great. You're, you can now be one of us. And she said, no, I'm, I'm more impactful where I sit. And there is a message in that too.
0: So maybe is in a tough situation, she's stuck between the uh, shop floor and senior management. She has this sort of rule book that she has to comply with, it doesn't work. Is her situation typical? Have you have you seen a lot of situations like that?
1: Yeah, you know, prior to doing this book, I've been doing a lot of work on leadership. As you know, working with leaders and also working with to do corporate education. And there tends to be, and I'm curious what you think about this, but there tends to be kind of a prevailing wisdom that middle management are kind of dinosaurs or permafrost. That you know, if if we could just remove them, then everything would work. I tend to think about it completely differently. I actually think that those middle managers are actually center leaders. They sit at the middle between strategy and results and between culture and people. They actually have the best 360 vantage point to see if an express strategy isn't being realized or if the culture isn't ready to deal with it or to motivate people. And so I see them more as dynamos. So by leading from the middle out in making the right appropriate shifts, anybody can lead. And in fact, today, to me, I believe there's only one requirement for leadership and that's that you have followership. And in this instance, May engenders followership through her shifted behavior and then kind of, you know, the organization then follows in line because they find aspiration.
0: And then the villain of your piece, Chief Muck, is is this CEO that insists on this immutable rule book and is very rigid and domineering. Is that somewhat typical of, of how leaders lead change?
1: Maybe less typical today, but when you're doing a narrative like this, you kind of have to condense things. It's like in a movie, they'll put three characters into one because they can't like have too many characters. So what I tried to do there was just take the top 10 key behaviors you might see in a classical command and control, which sounds like demand fail-proof plans, you know, measure outcomes, impose hierarchy, require conformity, centralized decisions, maintain control, monitor activity, demand performance, project power. That's really important. And so in a way, the mucks in general but muck more specifically kind of really embodies and personifies that leadership style and that's the classic you know that's the villain and so may has to stand up to the villain and and end up doing it her way as opposed to that way but only after she's suffered the the pain of having to move through each of those particular rules
0: at the end of the book as you just hinted after may does succeed in saving the world by throwing the immutable rule book away She's offered a, a place in the hierarchy and she refuses. And I, I wonder whether you're making some sort of political point there. Why why that twist at the end?
1: Yeah, well, it's back to what I was saying earlier, this notion of middle-out leadership. I think as much as I've worked with leaders around the world, and there's a thing that Barbara Kellerman calls leadership attribution error. I think that leadership is not as much about position. It's not a noun. It's a system. And if you don't have the leaders in the middle... Being middle management that are kind of dinosaurs, but instead being dynamos, you're not going to have a system that can adapt as fast as you want. So, you know, in that scene, in my mind, the idea was Chief Muck is offering her what he believes to be the ultimate prize. But given her perspective and her ability to have changed the organization in her way, she recognizes that leading from the middle out is probably more effective. So, so that was the juxtaposition I was looking for there. I'm glad you picked up on that, Martin.
0: Let's go into the theory behind the book a little bit. So the first part of the journey is, is this sort of ineffective approach to change, mm-hmm. captured by the Muck immutable rule book, the MERB. And the 10 rules are foolproof plans, measure outcomes, impose hierarchy, dictate direction, require conformity, centralize decisions, maintain control, monitor activity, demand performance, project power. Sounds a bit like uh, some hybrid of Taylorism and project management. Is that roughly right?
1: That's right. Actually, the research behind this book was sponsored by Brightline because one of the things that they're they're recognizing is that the standard kind of project management PMBOK that everybody's been trained in, you know, to get things in time, on budget, under control, is not necessarily succeeding as well as it had in the past as those kind of models move on to agile and, and other kind of models. And so so, yeah, there is a little bit of a Doing that harder and faster does not a changed organization yield. We actually have to do something differently. It's not the same playbook, pun intended. And what is essentially wrong
0: with that? Because, you know, hierarchy and authority have, you know, they're not very fashionable, but they've served us well for a hundred years or so. What what precisely is it about this sort of very traditional approach to management, which
1: undermines change in, in your opinion? Well, I kind of think about this in two ways. I think you must have command and control to execute. And by execute there, I mean to to do, not to kill. That's the problem. A lot of strategies get killed, executed, not done, executed. So I think that a command and control model, once you've identified what the opportunity is or what the value creation position is, is important. I think using that same model to try to imagine, dare I say, nod to your most recent book, right? Where we should go in a world that has infinite possibility doesn't add value. So I see them as two sides to the same coin, where if you're trying to manage an organization to find its way forward in a generative fashion, because we don't know what the answer is, that's what I call a figure-it-out world. So then you need diversity of opinion. You need a more open model to try to make sense of what's happening and to discern patterns and so on and so forth. And then you find what I call a progression path. Oh, this might be a way forward. Then you throw it back over to command and control to execute on that to see whether or not your hypothesis is true or not. But the problem is, I think we get stuck in that. So I think there's, there's a duality to organizations today where we kind of have to find our way forward and kind of probe forward in more of a biological metaphor, as I know you're sympathetic with as well, kind of like an amoeba. That's more of a biological. And then we need to get mechanical to try it out. And, and, and so there's a dance that goes back and forth. I believe the MIRB is the status quo, and we need to stretch away from it to find our way forward, and then you can MIRBify that and test it. So I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm saying complement it with this kind of yin and yang of exploration and exploitation, if we want to go back to a strategy model. Interestingly,
0: you, not that I could see, do you give a name to the alternative, except in the appendix? So we do have this alternative philosophy appearing once, maybe has our epiphany, which in the appendix you call. People sent to change, and and that is almost the inverse set of rules. Give others agency, motivate discretionary effort, embrace situational humility, decentralize decision making, catalyze a network, focus attention, act to think differently, lead the system, communicate a compelling change narrative, and
1: nudge the culture. Mm-hmm.
0: Your experience is that that approach yields better results in major change.
1: Yes, I, I think so. Particularly in, in, it's very ironic. Particularly in kind of discontinuous change or where you're thrown off kilter for whatever reason—a competitive move, something like COVID, some exogenous variable coming in. The irony is just in our own biology: is when we're put into a position of fear like that, kind of the blood rushes from the front of our head, right? And so we don't have that executive function. We don't actually biologically have the capability to kind of see it forward. We kind of fall back into old patterns. So, so we almost fall into Merbland. So I think the biggest challenge for leaders is when faced with massive uncertainty, can you make these small shifts so that you can keep your, your kind of field of vision more open to opportunity, rather than regressing back to what Charles Handy would call a mean of mediocrity, that we just kind of fall back into the old patterns, right? The other thing that was really tricky, Martin, and I think you'd appreciate this knowing you, is in the MERB, it was easy to tell the story about the 10 things and, that, oh, the rule didn't work. But when you shift, when May actually starts to try to apply the people-centered transformation on, you'll notice that more than one element lights up at different times. It's not linear. It's more like a network. And so, oh, I'm firing up whatever, you know, compelling narrative and give others agency, or I'm firing up nudge the culture. So it's not linear. So the hardest part was fitting that in, fitting all of that into the story as the inverse of what happened with the linear MERB. So a couple of interesting things struck me about
0: this uh, alternative people-centered change. One of them is that, ironically, this is perhaps the new orthodoxy. I mean, you hear a a lot of talk about people-centric change and networks and flat organizations and uh, Holacracy. holacracy, humanistic management. So I'm wondering, does your book have meaning because those things only exist at the level of slogans and you need them to exist at the level of substance? Or is it more that in the very moment you need them, you're likely to desert them because of the the fear and the pressure of the major change situation?
1: You put your finger on what I'm trying to do. Yes, and I'm trying to do both of those things. So in one way, I try to find MISI mutually, you know, whether the 10 key components and then bring the latest research to bear in this. I try to kind of synthesize what have we seen, which is what you're saying, that the trend tends to be towards psychological safety and more human-centered, even design thinking, more empathy, those kind of things, but also to show how very hard it is to not fall back into the MIRB when you're dealing with so much uncertainty. And then trying to personify that through a narrative is it's almost, you might you might say, oh, well, that's the moment at which. And the, the other thing I tried to do was with a head nod to like James Clear and others who talk about change or Hermani Ibarra. It's like, it used to be, certainly as an academic, it's like we try to think our way into a new way of acting. You know, smoking is really bad for you. You'll take this much off your life. Have you seen a picture of your, you know, trying to explain to people as opposed to act your way into a new way of thinking is, you know, whatever, one less cigarette a day or go cold turkey, but but you actually try and, you try and modify your behavior before you try and kind of change your mind, so to speak. So acting your way into new way of thinking. And I believe for the shift from traditional leadership to move over to this, it actually paradoxically requires those who are high up in the hierarchy to literally behave differently.
0: Yeah, I was once, I worked with a CEO who said essentially that his organization needed, he didn't use the word PCT, people-centered change, but he had his own variant on it. He said, essentially, we need that, but it needs, an, it needs a dictator to impose that. Mm. So he said, I'm basically a very traditional manager. You know, my last act as, a, as an autocrat will be to impose this destruction of order. <laughs> and he said, then, you know, then the revolution will eat me. Mm. And it did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so there are sort of interesting paradoxical relationships between authority and decentralization, I think.
1: Absolutely. And and I think you could even you could point to recent elections and so on and so forth and the shift that's going on. It's it's almost like those in authority injecting a little bit more chaos, if you want to call it that. Even I will recall I was at IBM working inside of IBM when Lou Gerstner came along and um, he changed a lot. Everybody at IBM, you could tell there was a joke. You could tell how high up they were in the hierarchy by how how long their arms were, because they used to have whole file folders full of PowerPoints to articulate, you know, what their plan was and what their budget was. And in one fell swoop, Lou banished that. He said, I want you to come in and we're going to spend 20 minutes where you're going to talk to me about where your business is. And then we're going to spend 20 minutes where you're going to talk to me about where you're going to take your business. And this just, the ripples shifted all the way through. But in doing that, he was kind of essentially shifting orthodoxy, if you will, deliberately, very deliberately.
0: Is PCT, people-centered change, always right? Or is it one of the alternatives to to MIRB yeah, Or does it actually represent, in a sense, in the story, a collection of alternatives to
1: MURB? The way I see it, Martin, is in complexity theory, you have these things called strange attractors, right? And I think the strange attractor at the moment is kind of the center of gravities around the MERB, right? And so left to its own devices, the little ball in that strange attractor will kind of ultimately settle in those 10 things. If you want to shift the organization, I'm not saying you're going to shift it all to a whole new strange attractor, but the idea is you, you want to stretch away from the MERB on some of these elements. If you are trying to drive change and you don't have a compelling change narrative, right, that makes a purposeful, passionate, and emotionally resonant case for change, it's going to be really hard to do it. Martin Luther King did not say, I have a plan. The plan came after. The dream comes first. And with that dream, others can see the possibility in that dream. And so then that creates followership. And then you, so, so there are kind of, you got to stretch away from demanding fail-proof plans to having a dream kind of thing. It doesn't mean that the dream wasn't realized without organization. So there is a duality here that I want to recognize and honor. I'm not saying throw out the MERB. I'm saying you can't Murbify everything, particularly in the world we're dealing in today.
0: So how do we choose the, the right approach to change under the right circumstances? If, if, if people-centered change is, is essentially a collection of vectors which pull you away from the dominant approach to change, mm-hmm. which particular collection of vectors will get it done? Because it strikes me that there probably isn't one thing called change and there probably isn't right. one thing called change management. So how do we get a contingent or a contextual theory of change in practice?
1: In practice theory of change, what I typically do with whatever group you're working at. the other thing is this is designed to work at the leader, the personal leader level. What do I need to work on? The team level or the organization level? And I've worked at all three levels with this with this thing. But the first question I ask is, I know you like music. What key are we in? So, the first question I ask is, what is the level of complexity that you're facing today? And I, I explain to them what that means and all that. And I'm not, you know, time in this podcast to go into that, but you know, you know what I mean by that. And so they um invariably come out saying super complex. And some of them are saying chaos, depending on, you know, what industry we're in and how much they're, they're being disrupted. And so I say, okay, well, the type one error in change is misdiagnosing your context. You know, I think it's Einstein that said, You should make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler than it needs to be. This is the law of requisite complexity. So sometimes I think we feel, oh, I saw this back in 1969. I know exactly what to do. The fallacy in that is it's not 1969, right? And so the likelihood of what you think worked then working now, probably not so much. So number one, type one, do you know your context? And number two, are you slipping into the MERV because you're more complex? And if you are, then you need to go over more into the PCT land. Once you've been in PCT land and you've identified a progression path, a way forward, something that we might want to try and actually deliver tangible value, then you move back over into Merbland land and try to execute as fast as you can, fail forward fast as fast as you can, you know, test the hypothesis, and then you go back over. So I see it like as a little infinity loop where you move back and forward. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't
0: capture that contingency in the, in the book.
1: No. No, I didn't. So you, I have,
0: you know, presented as a story of good and evil, in a sense. And, yes. You know, yeah. good. The the PCT triumphed over the Merb, but you're saying that in practice, you need to mix and match philosophers and even change them along the way according to the circumstances.
1: Yeah, I, I really think how how you navigate change is is very contextual. You know, I call that the X factor. Context is the kingdom, but what I feel is in the world that we're living in today, in your framing of it, Martin. Right. I think that. We're in renewal a lot more than we used to be just because circumstances pushing us into that into the back plane of your framework. Right. And then as we're trying to emerge from that frame, we need to be adaptive in shaping rather than trying to revert back to classical in your language. So, so how do we keep that open posture? In a time where we're feeling really pressured, and so we fall back to the MERP. So I I was being deliberately provocative here uh, (laughs) to try to just say, face it up as good and evil. The subtlety that you're nicely drawing out here is that, you know, this is not the new answer, but this is a different set of vectors that you might want to consider depending on your context. That's exactly the way I see it.
0: So if a leader wanted to begin to implement some of these capabilities or approaches, either in anticipation of a major change effort or in a major change effort. Presumably that's a complicated or a challenging change process in itself because you're cultivating new habits or you're, you're breaking existing habits. If a listener to this podcast said, yep, yeah, we're gonna try and do that, mm-hmm. like, where would they begin? Because those 10 things are so, it's such a broad agenda that it virtually is sort of changing all aspects of culture, mindset, managerial behavior, structure, decision
1: systems. Where would you begin? you start where the biggest leverage is. So I've developed something called the PCT Pulse that just essentially asks the questions like, do our leaders communicate a clear, concise, consistent, compelling narrative that makes a purposeful, passionate, and emotionally resonant case for change? One to seven. And you can do that for your team. You can ask it about yourself or you can do it at the organization level. And I've done it at all three levels. And the beauty of this, Martin, is it's non-linear. You start where you start and you start where you think leadership needs to advance. And, and ultimately, by applying people centered transformation, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a leadership system. Again, back to this notion that leadership is not a position or a role. Leadership is a system like everything else. Everything in an organization is a system, but we don't tend to think of leadership as this kind of reciprocal leader follower system. And so I think by working each of these areas where you think the next leadership shifts need to happen, what you end up having is, is a, a more agile and adaptive leadership system that can kind of bob and weave through the vagaries of of what we're dealing with today.
0: And are there any very high leverage unlocks? For example, I I found that one tiny move that unlocks a lot of other things is a rule of a compulsory dissenting opinion. Mm -hmm. Just listen to the alternative.
1: The devil's alternative kind of thing.
0: It compresses a lot of the other behaviors. Have you discovered sort of small things that you can do that, so that you don't need to approach this sort of, you know, 10-point agenda in its entirety. You can approach it through an unlock.
1: Yeah, the unlocks are what I call the shifts. So I could not fit the 30 shifts into the book. I'll own that, right? But in the back of the book, I try to articulate with it. So for each PCT element that you talked about, compelling change narrative or act to think differently, embrace, I have what I call three micro shifts. Let me give you an example. If we start talking about act to think differently, do our leaders generate respect, followership from others by personally, authentically, and openly modeling the change beliefs and behaviors required to evolve the organization? You could invoke Gandhi there, be the change, right? And so how are you going to shift from demanding change behavior, you will all, whatever, implement this program today or whatever to demonstrate change behavior. Here's how I make it super practical in a parental context. We're talking about kids right before we came online, right? I went into my kid's room yesterday. And I said, you will clean up your room and it will be done by the time I get home from work. I get home from work. what What's going on? The room is still chaos. And I'm like nodding, you know, imposing more hierarchy, being, being chief muck. And I walk into my bedroom and my bedroom looks like a disaster area. If you don't demonstrate the change behavior, why would you expect anybody who's in a in a position of followership through a hierarchy to follow you? If you're if you're not, it's back to the walking the talk. But then, very specifically, if that's as a leader, that's the thing you need to work on. I have a framework that says, what are you going to do more, better, or differently tomorrow?
0: That's probably a very good test case, Tony. I'll try that. you know, getting clean <laughs> yeah, in the bedroom. <laughs> if you do that, you can probably restructure a major multinational corporation. I would. There you imagine. go. So, so just ending on a personal note, because our, our time is up, Tony, what are you currently working on, thinking about, and is there a, a next book in the works?
1: Well, obviously, you and I have a lot of interest in, there was a notion of time travel in here, right? And, and with all the multiverse stuff coming out, I've done a lot of work in that area, I spent a lot of time, you know, multiple different universes in space, you could time travel if they have different entry conditions. So, you know, from a strategic perspective, that's an interesting thing. So I'm curious about that. And then I'm also curious about pushing a little bit further onto this notion of what does a leadership system look like? How do you actually define the boundaries of what that is? Because I think there's a lot of unquestioned assumptions about what it means to lead. None of us is as smart as all of us. And everybody, everybody can take on a leadership position in some context. And if we don't all do that, then I think we're in trouble. So those are the two kind of areas I'm looking at right now.
0: Well, thanks for sharing your views on the the book with us, Tony, giving us the behind the scenes account and uh, congratulations on its publication.
1: Thanks so much, Martin. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat about it with you. Always a pleasure.
0: So we've been discussing everyday superhero, how we can inspire everyone and create real change at work, published in the US in August 2022 from uh, Penguin Books by Tony O'Driscoll. If you like the conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. As always, we welcome feedback and thank you again, Tony.